I just want to say thank you for being here this morning, and uh, whether you're here in person or you're watching at church online, uh, thank you for choosing to spend this time with us. We're really glad that you're here. This is part five of a series that we're calling Battling Mediocrity, and we decided to tackle this subject uh, back at the beginning of the new year because we really do believe that excellence honors God and inspires people. It's one of our core values of our church, that excellence honors God and inspires people. And we, when we say excellence, what we mean by that is we, we simply mean the very best that we can bring. So far in this series, we've talked about how we use our time. Uh, we've talked about our battle with distractions. We've talked about mediocrity and excellence in the workplace. We've talked about our inclination toward comparison, like comparing ourselves to others and how that leads to envy. And then last week, we talked about mediocrity in our relationship with God, like spiritual mediocrity, and how to stay involved in the process of becoming who God has called us to be. So that's where we've been. Today, I'm going to be talking somewhat specifically about marriage. I think you'll find this practical. You might find it a little bit challenging. Um, I'm going to tell you that right now. If you're here this morning because someone dragged you here, I mean, they invited you to lunch afterwards, and you wouldn't normally find yourself in church, and you're like, yeah, I wouldn't normally find myself like openly exploring faith, but I'm here today, so if I'm here, I want to learn something. You know, it'd be great if this is at least helpful. Uh, I think you might be surprised, and I hope you're motivated by what the Scripture has to say about our marriage relationships. So we've been talking about battling mediocrity for these last few weeks. So why are we talking about relationships in the home? Well, I think it's pretty obvious because it's, it's really easy to become complacent at home. It's easy to become complacent about the relationships that actually mean the most to us because we're just so comfortable in those relationships, right? So here's the thing. When it comes to our level of comfortability and our level of complacency and how mediocre our family relationships really are, I think there's one underlying issue that drives so much of that, and that's what we're going to talk about. So, so maybe you're married, and you've been married a long time, like five years, or maybe you've been married even longer than that, like 10 years, or maybe you've been married for like an inconceivable length of time, like 25 or 30 or even 50 or more years. There are people who have been here in this room who have been married more than 50 years. Isn't that crazy? But regardless of how long, we should just have them come here and talk. But regardless of how long you've been married, regardless of how much uh, you think you know, how much you uh, think you can teach everyone else about marriage, and please understand where I'm coming from, because I've been married 32 years, gives me some moral authority, but it doesn't make me an expert, okay? There's still a lot of room for all of us to learn something new. So if you aren't married, and you'd like to be married someday, I would suggest that you approach this teaching as kind of a marriage prep class, okay? Maybe a cautionary tale, all right? Just take it in. Take some notes. If you're in a relationship that might be moving somewhere someday, uh, have some conversation about this. But at the very least, tuck it away for a future conversation. But I would say have the conversation before you get married, okay? If you used to be married and you aren't married now, but you'd like to be, same thing for you. Don't dismiss what I'm going to say today over the next few minutes because you aren't married right now. Maybe you will be someday. So take it in, tuck it away for a future conversation. If you're used, maybe you used to be married and you aren't married now and you're pretty sure you won't go down that path again, there's still something here for you because the principles that we're going to talk about today, even though we're focusing on marriage, actually apply to all of the relationships in our lives, not just marriage. So there's, there's a point of application here for you too. So... <clears throat> I think if we're going to talk about the fighting the drift toward mediocrity, we have to acknowledge that this might be the area where we struggle the most. 
with those that we love the most. We struggle the most with those that we love the most. We just do, and here's why. Like, we love people in our families, and we want specific outcomes. And we think we want those outcomes because we love them, right? We want specific outcomes in the, lives of, in the life of our marriage. We want specific outcomes in the lives of our kids. We have hopes and dreams for them. We want specific outcomes uh, like for our whole family. And, and so we, we tend to want to, at times, control those people the most. We tend to want to control those we love the most because we love them right? And we want certain outcomes for them, and we want our home and our family dynamic to look a certain way, and we want our relationships to look a certain way, and we can struggle with control the most with those that we love the most. That's why we need to talk about it. Because if we don't, nothing changes. Things kind of stay the same. But but, but they don't really stay the same, because over time, those relationships will drift toward mediocrity. Control in relationships is driven by expectations. Control in relationships is driven by expectations. There are really two types of expectations that we have in in the context of our relationships. One type of expectation is the expectation that you bring into a relationship. Maybe that you don't even realize that you're bringing, right? Uh, but they've just been kind of hardwired into you from the way that you were raised, or if you married a little later in life, maybe just the way you figured out how to do life on your own, and you bring all those expectations with you into the relationship. So expectations you bring. And then the other kind of expectation are hopes that become expectations. Like you come into a marriage and you have hopes. You hope that you'll have your first house by the time you've been married five years. You hope that you'll have X number of kids by the time you're 30. You hope that you're going to have a certain level of income that's going to allow you to take certain kinds of vacations and have certain types of experiences so you can post certain types of pictures on Instagram by the time you're at a certain point. And you really hope that between the two of you, you'll achieve a certain level of income where you can have a certain kind of lifestyle. And you hope that one day that might happen. But see, as we kind of get into our marriage, those hopes can become expectations. And there comes a day then where we find ourselves frustrated. Frustrated that, man, I'm like, I'm 35 and I still don't own my own home. I've been married, we've been married 10 years and we're still not debt free. I thought this would happen by now. I thought all of this would happen by now. How come he can't work harder? How come she can't make a little bit more money? Our hopes become expectations. Like, we've been married, like, forever, and we still don't have any money in the bank. Why can't she save better? Why can't he see that we need to have a plan? I mean, I'm 40, and I've never been to Europe. I mean, I'm so frustrated, like, because your hope becomes an expectation. And as hopes in your life become expectations, it starts to create more pressure. And maybe you just start to carry them. And some of them become unspoken expectations, like, you've never said it, but you would think by now that she would understand. He would get it. So here's the thing about expectations. Why we have to pay attention to them. Because left unspoken and unaddressed, expectations tend to increase. And honestly, let's just talk about where we find ourselves. During this pandemic, some of the expectations have changed and I would say increased. Like for years, here's, an, here's a scenario. For years, you went to work then all of a sudden you're working from home. And that sounds great until you realize the kids are at home too. Like 
they aren't going to school anymore and they're here while you're trying to work and make sure they get some kind of an education. And finally, you get to go back to work. Happy day. And the kids get to go back to school. Woohoo! But they never really went back to school because every other week someone in their class has been exposed to somebody who was exposed to somebody and now you're all quarantined. And it just seems like every... My, can you identify with this? Okay, so like every other week, right? Someone's stuck at home on a school-mandated quarantine. And on top of that, since your kids used to eat at school and you used to go out for lunch or work through lunch, and now you're stuck at home and no one's been grocery shopping, and why didn't someone think to get groceries? The expectations increased. <clears throat> maybe for you, financial expectations increased because you've had a decrease in income or maybe uh, been scaled back in your job or maybe lost a job. But the business you work for has taken a hit in the last two years. Add on top of that, isolation. Add on top of that fear of COVID. Add on top of that concern about spreading COVID to somebody that you care about. Add on top of that dealing with the anxiety that maybe you've never dealt with before. Add on top of that the stress of kids going back to school and then not being able to go back to school and then going back to school and then back into quarantine. And all these things create one thing. They create pressure. So much pressure. And there's this increase in the level of pressure on your family life. And I I hope you've talked about this, and this isn't like, oh, yeah, I never thought about that. I want to talk specifically about how you felt pressure on your marriage relationship. So let's just talk about marriage for a little bit. Over the last, um, let's call it two years, during this collective experience with COVID, I know a few people who would say, man, our marriage has never been better. Like, we've done so much together. Like, our circles have gotten smaller, and we've spent so much time together, and we've simplified things, and the way that we spend time together has just been, like, so focused, and it's been great for us. And that's great for you. But that's not the story for everybody. Data is showing that the majority of people are struggling in their marriage. The majority of people are struggling in their marriage under this pressure, and they continue to feel this pressure. There's a term now that's starting to work its way across the globe, just, just Google it, COVID divorce. It's a thing, and it's becoming more and more common for people to divorce in the midst of this pandemic experience. This experience has, has created so much pressure on marriages, and pressure, here's the thing, over time, Pressure turns cracks in your marriage into canyons. Pressure over time turns marriage cracks into canyons. That it, like if you had issues before COVID that you were just kind of living with and you were just kind of ignoring in your marriage, the pressure of this current situation maybe has turned those cracks into, in many cases, into canyons. And you had these expectations and you were struggling because they weren't being met. But now, for some reason, it's just hard to look past those things because they've started to really bother you, because they started to become more difficult for you, because you're disappointed. Maybe you feel increased pressure, and the cracks have become canyons. So it's like you reach a point where you say, you know, for years I just thought this would go, this would go away in our marriage. It would resolve itself. And now, like, I can't take it anymore. Uh, you know, we're going to get some help or we're done. Here's the thing about expanding cracks in your marriage. Expanding cracks in your marriage push you towards control or escape. They push you towards control or towards escape. 
Like, I need to control all the outcomes. I need to control him. I need to control her. I need to control what's happening with the kids. I need to control what's happening with the money. I need to control, control, control because of the expectations that you want. And as the cracks get bigger, the more you start to grasp for control, the more you start to feel the canyon thing happening, and the more there is distance in your relationship, the more powerless you feel, and you want to escape. So you start to work more. You're hanging out in the basement watching TV more, playing video games, or your, uh, whatever your thing is. You know, you're hanging out with your friends more. Or I forgot something at the store. Oh, I forgot. I got to go get gas. Or I got to go out for coffee. Or you're just trying to control, control, control. And then it's like, how come he seems, or how come she seems so like disengaged? But because she's escaping. He's escaping. Can I admit something to you? For those of you I have, who I haven't had a chance to meet yet, and because honestly, it takes probably one real conversation with me to see this, but I like to be in control. <laughs> I'm not sure why that's funny. Because <laughs> at least I know it and I admit it about myself. Would you like a microphone now? <laughs> How about you? How many of you are control freaks? You're, so, you're such a control freak, you won't put your hand up because I'm asking you to. That's, I know who you are. I know who you are because I'm exactly the same way. If I'm sitting there and someone asks me to do that, I'm not doing that. Can't make me do it. Anyway, as a person who likes to feel like I'm in control, and for the rest of you control freaks, you, you know this is true, often when we feel things are going well, they're only going well for us. But ask the people around us, they may not feel that way because they're escaping. They're ignoring and when this control thing is left unchecked, it leads to this canyon forming in our relationships between the control person and the escape person. And eventually, the escape person, somebody says to them, you know what, if you're not happy, why don't you just get out? Don't you know? God wants you to be happy. It says so in the Bible somewhere. Like, you're an independent person. You'll be fine. Be done with it. Move on. Or the control person, you know, somebody says, if it's just so hard that you're not happy, why don't you just get out of it? Let me just say this for the record. Divorce is not the answer to this struggle. It may be the short-term answer to your control tendencies or your escape tendencies, but it's not the answer God wants for you. And if you find yourself leaning into, yeah, that's, I know that's true, but what about my happiness? Then I'm concerned for you because we make all kinds of poor choices based on what we think is going to make us happy. How do we ensure that our marriage thrives under all this increased pressure? Like, here's the thing. I've never done a marriage, like officiated a marriage ceremony, a wedding ceremony where the overlying theme of the wedding is, and may you go and have a mediocre marriage. And everybody golf clapped. You know what I mean? It's like, that's not the hope. When that couple's walking out of the, left the altar and walking out of the auditorium, um, that... No one's hoping for mediocrity. So how do we ensure that our marriage thrives? We're going to look at something the Apostle Paul said, and then we're going to look at something the Apostle Peter had to say. <clears throat> and we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. It is our authority for life and faith and belief and human flourishing. So if you find yourself in a relationship that is floundering or failing, I can pretty much guarantee that the people in that marriage are not both applying the truth of Scripture to that relationship. Like, if you're in a relationship that 
isn't really failing, but it isn't thriving either, just kind of focusing on surviving and keeping it all together. It's neither here nor there. might even be better, you know, if you thought it might be better than you thought it could be, but it's not as good as maybe it ought to be. Um, it's really just mediocre. The good news is Jesus has called us to a life of abundance, a life that is flourishing. So I hope you'll find these passages of Scripture interesting and challenging and hopefully inspiring. So these are the written words of the Apostle Paul. And this is a big one when it comes to what the Bible has to say about marriage. And it might be familiar, but please, please don't tune me out, okay? Because you might be surprised where we're going with this. Ephesians chapter 5, and you think you've heard everything there is to hear about this. I'm hoping to shake that up a little bit this morning. Ephesians 5, verse 21. Paul says, and further, he's just continuing a thought that's been going on here for five chapters now. Submit to one another. So let's just stop right there because this is interesting. Because you've got to be thinking, really? He doesn't deserve to be submitted to. She doesn't deserve to be submitted to. And Paul's like, hey, you need to submit to one another. Paul's talking about mutual submission. And you're like, yeah, but he drives me crazy and she just nags all the time and I'm supposed to submit to this person who isn't meeting any of my needs, you know, and this relationship is, they don't deserve it and how am I supposed to submit to them, Paul? You don't know my situation. Paul tells us, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So he isn't saying, submit to them because they deserve it. Or submit to them because they'll return it to you. But submit to them because Christ has done an incredible thing for you. Christ submitted to your need by dying on the cross for the forgiveness of your sin and making a way for you to have a restored relationship with your heavenly Father. So, out of reverence for Christ... We submit to one another because of what Christ has done for us. That's different. Like, that's a game changer. Christ served us by dying on a cross, taking on our sin, taking on our shame, so that we could live in relationship with our Heavenly Father. And out of reverence, like out of awe for what He's done for us, from that place, Paul says, serve your wife, serve your husband, submit to one another. And maybe he doesn't deserve it today. (laughs) Maybe she doesn't deserve it. That's not the point. It's out of reverence for Christ in light of what Christ has done for us. This is what's so interesting about this, how, how God has designed it. The way that a married couple experiences Christ is by serving one another. I'm serving you out of reverence for Christ so you can experience his love in your life. And what Paul is saying is mutual submission is the mark of a successful marriage. Mutual submission is the mark of a biblical marriage. Mutual submission should be the defining characteristic of marriage for the follower of Jesus. So, submit to one another, and then he goes on to explain it in a bit. Hang with me, verse 22. For wives, you listening? This means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, you may struggle with this because you see this as a patriarchal thing from an, uh, a mindset where we don't live anymore. Like it's condoning, condoning some kind of top-down thing where the man is the king of the castle. Can I just say this? Over the last three or 400 years in the English-speaking Western world, we've done a huge disservice to the Scripture by leaning solely into our English translations of the Bible. Did you know Newsflash, did you know the Bible was not originally written in English? Did you know that? Did, how many of you have read the original texts? 
not me. <laughs> did you know Jesus didn't speak English? Did you know that? I mean, I think he could have if he wanted to, just no one would have heard, understood, but he didn't speak English. Did you know Moses and David and Solomon, they, Paul, they didn't write in English? They weren't Anglo-Saxon. They weren't white men of European descent. And when we lose sight of the fact that the Bible was written in three different languages over four, by 40 different authors over a period, listen, of 1,500 years, and then it has been translated sometimes from the original language to another language and then into English, when we lose sight of that, it's easy to attach meaning to the text that was never the original intent. I'm thinking about doing a series um, on some of the most misused and misunderstood passages in the Bible and how that's affected the church and even shaped entire cultures on a misreading and a misuse of the Bible. So I think that could be interesting. I'm a little nervous about doing it because it could also blow this whole thing up and I kind of don't know if I want to go there, but I haven't decided yet. So maybe we'll do a poll. Anyway, this is one of those passages right here in Ephesians 5. First of all, I'm not a Greek scholar, okay? I learned, I did a half year of Greek and kind of learned the alphabet so I could find a frat house. I don't know. I didn't, what am I, I mean, I didn't, not, forget it. <laughs> um, what was I talking about? Greek text. I, but I like to read people who've done the work, okay? Who've, who've learned these languages and learned how to interpret it and bring it to us. So the Greek text doesn't even have the word submit in this verse. It just reads, the Greek text reads, for wives, this means to your husbands as to the Lord. So this is one of those times when the chapter and verse divisions in the Bible have contributed to pulling verses out of a greater text and making them somehow stand alone. You know, when Paul wrote this, he didn't write a letter. And now chapter five, verse one, and he writes a paragraph. Verse two, those are all man-made. Those are added much later just to help us find our way around. It was well-intentioned. But what we tend to do is we think they stand alone. We call it proof texting. When you take something out of a text and make it say something it doesn't mean in context. So if you've ever objected to this passage, it's probably because verse 22 in its English translation was lifted out of context, away from the previous verse, away from the following verses, and left to stand on its own. And all it said is, wives, submit to your husbands. But without the passage divided into verses, and without this addition of the word submit here in verse 22, it would read this way. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means to your husbands as to the Lord. Here's why this is important. Because the statement, for wives, this means to your husbands as to the Lord, makes no sense. It's not a complete sentence. Have you noticed? You take submit out of there, this doesn't make sense. So in order for it to be a complete thought, the translators added submit in there. But now because of our inclination to proof text, we take it out of context and we just say, wives, submit yourselves to your husband without including, you know, submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. Like when you put in there and it's all one thought, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, first premise, for wives this means to your husbands as to the Lord, whole new meaning. Like verse, the submission in verse 22 is inferred from the previous verse, which is about mutual submission. So then it says this, another troublesome verse, verse 23. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. Don't say anything, guys, because you don't know where I'm going with this. He's the savior of his body, the church. 
As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave himself, he gave up his life for her. First of all, let's address the word head in verse 23. Yeah, verse, thank you. This word doesn't mean the husband is the head of the wife like a head coach is the head of the team or like your boss is the head of the company or of your department. Doesn't mean he's king of the castle. The word translated head isn't about authority at all. It's the same word from where we get the word fountainhead or source. Have you ever heard of the headwaters of a river? You know what I mean by that? This is a familiar term to you. Headwaters of a river. Okay, maybe we'll do it. You do know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, thank you. Just wondering. The headwaters are a river, or of a river are, are part of the source of that river. It's where the river gets its life. The word in this text refers all the way back to the creation story, where it says that the woman was created from a man. So read this again with all this in mind. So the husband is to be a life-giving source for the wife, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, life-giving. So if that's the context, then why wouldn't a wife be willing to submit to her life-giving husband? Oh, and think about this, verse 25, right? A husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. And husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. So just as Christ. So like how many times in the gospel do you see Jesus getting a crowd around him and ordering them around? Never. How many times in the gospels do you see Jesus demanding that he be served? Demanding that he be first? Never. How many times do you see him inconveniencing himself and humbling himself and putting his own interests aside and serving people? Always. Husbands, love your wife in that same way. So, back to the question. How do your relationship cracks become canyons? How does that happen? This is what Paul is saying. I'm going to show you a graphic. It's pretty simple. It looks like this. You can put that up for me, Mark. So you have a husband and a wife who are connected to one another, and they're both connected to God, like if they both have a relationship with Him. And Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Love one another out of reverence for Christ. Serve one another out of, out of reverence for God, for who He is and that, and that He's given you His Son. Serve out of reverence for Him. That's what's going to hold you together. That's what's going to keep the cracks from becoming canyons. But you know what? If we're honest, sometimes we replace God with a bunch of other things. And we try to hold our marriage together that way. Let me tell you what I mean. For example, maybe your marriage is centered around your kids. It's a shaky foundation. Because right now it's centered around getting your kids to their sports, you know? All your conversations about logistics. Maybe your marriage is centered around your careers or your financial goals. Or your marriage is centered around the business you, you want to build, maybe even together. You feel like you're on the same track and you're working together and it feels like our marriage is going pretty well and then something happens, something changes. I don't know. Let's say a pandemic strips some of that away. And now the kids aren't playing sports for a while. They aren't taking dance classes for a while. The job isn't as secure as you thought it was. Or the stock market, I don't know, isn't as stable as it had been. That sure thing doesn't look like a sure thing anymore. If there's anything that we've learned in the last couple of years, it's that everything we have is temporary. 
right? And when the things we put in this box at the top of this graph, if, if those things get taken away, all of a sudden the cracks start to become canyons. And our relationships can no longer sustain themselves. We start to find ourselves drifting apart because we don't have those things in common that we leaned on to hold us together because those things have changed. Or maybe they're gone altogether. But God never changes. His love for us never changes. The example of Jesus never changes. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You're like, okay, that sounds good. That sounds great. Great. So we're just going to submit out of reverence for Christ. I'm going to serve my spouse. I'm going to serve. I'm going to submit to them and I'm going to serve them. I'm going to, you know, get in their corner because of what Christ has done for me. That sounds great. But we were talking about unmet expectations. Let's not change the subject. What do I do about that? So what do I do about my unmet expectations in this context? Like I had dreams. I had hopes. I have things that, you know, drive me crazy. I thought I'd have, we'd have a house by now or, or a better house by now or more money or maybe a vacation once in a while. I mean, everyone else I know has all of these things at this point in their life, at this point in their marriage, at this point in their family life. So like, what about my expectations? I thought we'd have some financial stability. I thought we'd have some shared interests. I thought we'd have grandkids. I thought we'd have more grandkids. I thought we'd have enjoyable family gatherings. I thought we'd have peace and joy when our family gets together. What do I do with my unmet expectations? This isn't just an issue for marriage. This is, this is, this is an issue for all relationships. The Apostle Peter, who was married, tells us what to do with unmet expectations. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. He says, all of you, dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. Dress, I love that language, dress yourselves in humility. So what we're talking about is humility. When you have power, have humility. When you feel powerless, have humility. And then he says this, and he's actually quoting King Solomon here, and he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What's that mean? It means that when in our pride we try to control, God's in opposition to that. That God goes against, that, that goes against what God wants for us. When in our pride we say, well, we're just going to escape. You know what? I'm not, I'm not going to deal with that right now. If that's how he's going to be, if that's how she's going to be, I'm just going to do my own thing. If that's how they're going to control me, I'm just going to escape. God says, no, I, I oppose that. I stand against that kind of pride. That's, and that's pretty strong language. But God also says, if you want to choose humility, if you want to choose to serve, if you want to choose to lay down your expectations and submit to your spouse, he says, I'm going to give you grace for that. I'm going to give you grace in that position. I'm going to be present with you in that. Because he gives grace when we choose humility. And Peter goes on, verse 6. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God. So like you want power? Humble yourself under the one who's powerful. Humble yourself under the one who ultimately loves you and your spouse and your family more than anybody else. Humble yourselves under him. Submit your expectations to him. Submit your dreams to him. And it says at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. We like this part, right? Like with my expectations, if I lay them before God, he's going to lift me up with honor. Man, that's great, God. That's good news. Thank you. I mean, this other part I'm not so crazy about, the part where it says at the right time, you know, because I know what at the right time does, but God doesn't see what that means, but God doesn't seem to understand what it means because it means in his time. 
Because this is what I want to do, right? Because like, I can say, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to submit to Alethea on Monday. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to serve her considering how Jesus has served me. I'm going to love her the way Jesus loves her. And if I do that on Monday, then by Thursday, God will lift me up and all my expectations will be met. And that's not what this says. It says, at the right time, he'll lift you up in honor. And then I, I think what Peter wants to just communicate to us that when we bring our expectations to God, when we humble ourselves, he wants to remind us that we don't need to worry about how much God loves us or where we stand with him. Because he says this in verse 7, give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. Peter says, hey, here's a reminder. I know it's hard to be humble and to serve and to submit your expectations to God and to consistently choose humility. But when you do, you're giving your worries to God who cares about you more than anyone else, who loves you more than anyone else, who loves you more than you love yourself. He's reminding us that we have a heavenly father who understands what we care about and who loves you and wants what's best for you, what Jesus called a rich and satisfying life. See, when we choose control and we choose escape, that's not, it's not an inspiring story. Like, control is not an inspiring story. People are, who are controlling don't inspire people. People who escape don't inspire people. Nobody's inspired by the guy who says, yeah, I escaped my family by being away from them as much as possible. You know, and you're like, yeah, that's what I want. No, those aren't inspiring stories of escape or control, but there are inspiring stories of humility in the context of those relationships. And this is part of what Peter's getting at. When the pressure's on, choose humility. Let, like, let, let Jesus write the story. Let him lift you up at the right time. Let him write the story that inspires others. This laying down expectations in your family relationships is hard. Yes, this is hard stuff. And it's a daily exercise. And it's part, like we talked about last week, it's part of becoming more like Jesus, a part of letting him write our story. So let's ask ourselves, what's our next step out of this? We talked a couple weeks ago about contentment. I think a lot of people settle for mediocrity, but settling isn't the same as contentment. If you've settled for mediocrity in your marriage or in your family relationships, or maybe it's so bad that you're hoping for mediocrity, Listen, Jesus wants so much more for you. His words, he's called us to a rich and satisfying life. Rich and satisfying is where your relationships are flourishing and mediocrity is the enemy of flourishing. So what now? Well, I would suggest just this. I would suggest you start with making a list of the, and you're like, of course, make a list. Yeah, but make a list of the expectations you have of those you love the most. Like, actually make a list. Like, write it down. Make a list of the expectations you have of your husband, your wife, your partner, your significant other, your children, those you love the most. Make a list of those expectations. And then, and then listen, and then find yourself in a place in humility where you can give that list to God. And when you give those expectations to God, there are no longer things you expect from the people in your life. And there's freedom in that. Now it's possible for your relationships to thrive when you've set aside your expectations of others. 
And maybe for you in your marriage, it's a, it's a bigger step than that that you need. Like maybe for you, you need to take an awkward step across the canyon from pride to humility and say to your spouse, I think we've got to see a counselor. I think we've got to talk to a friend. We've got to bring somebody in. We've got to reach out to somebody because we're in trouble. And we've got to get some people in our corner. Not my corner, your corner, our corner. There's so much good that can happen if somebody gets in your corner. And again, not your corner versus your spouse's corner, but when they're rooting for your marriage. When the people in your life are supporting you in your marriage and when they want nothing more than to see your marriage flourish, you need those people in your life. And I believe this because I've seen it happen, that those canyons in your relationship can be filled in to where all that's left of the canyon is a remnant of a crack. And those cracks, listen, can become moments and reminders of healing and redemption and a story that only Jesus can write in your marriage because that's what he wants for you. You want to fight for your relationship? Choose submission. Choose humility. Because that's what Jesus did for us. And if you're like, I don't know, I don't know if I can do that. Um, No, I, I don't think I can do that. Like, what if it isn't received? Like, what if it isn't returned to me? You can count on this. God gives grace to the humble. And when we choose humility... We experience the grace of God who gives us the strength to do this, who gives you the strength to continue to be humble when you have power and to be humble and to rely on him when you don't. I'm going to leave it there for this morning. Let's, I just want to encourage you to stay engaged with what God's doing in you and in us, what he's showing us. Let's keep processing what we're hearing, what we're learning. Um, and he, I guess this is my takeaway. Let's not leave this here when we leave here in a few minutes. Let's take this with us. Let's have some conversations within our households. Let's stay involved in the process of becoming more like Jesus, deepening in our relationship with him, bringing more and more of the character of Christ into all of our relationships.